This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sue Smithhurst, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm really excited too because, you know, you've been in my radar for so long, but I don't really know very much about you because you're always writing about other people. It's kind of nice, isn't it, to be a little bit anonymous, but I've always found other people far more fascinating than myself, quite frankly. <laughs> so, right. Well, I think you're fascinating and I want to get your story out. <laughs> well, you've interviewed Princess Mary, I hear. I have, yeah, and I've been to the palace and I interviewed Princess Diana very briefly and Prince William, so I've kind of done the, I'm, I'm doing the circuit, really. Yeah, wow. So you met Princess Diana? Yeah, in the, in the very, very early days of my journalism career when she was in Sydney. She came out for the Victor Chang Ball and we were all, you know, I was a, I was a fresh-faced little young'un um, starting out in the business and she, um, she sashayed along the red carpet and we all had a little opportunity to, you know, we were literally fighting in this sort of press pack to get our one question in to her and, and I um, asked her, I, I will remember it, forever um i asked her what um how she looked so amazing and you know because she was a stick figure thin and all those sorts of things back in the time and and she said my dear stress keeps me thin and that became a headline i was working at the time for new idea magazine and that became a headline cover story and i think it was the first ever um cover headline that i had so yeah and it was you know it was a fleeting glimpse of all about probably 15 seconds i had with her but she made me feel like I was the only person in the world. Do those people, when you meet people like her, because she was so, I, I mean, from, I never met her and I never saw her in real life, but there is some radiance. You know, some people light up a room and I'd imagine she was one of them. She had, I mean, she had it in space. The, 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 she oozed charisma and and then I, you know, I don't like, it's an often sort of overused word, I think, but presence, you know, she really had presence, partly because of obviously who she was in the statue. And we probably created a little bit of that presence too in an environment where there's dozens and dozens of press people from around the world and lights and cameras and activity. And it's all very, very exciting. But she just had this presence and this momentum about her and the ability to make anyone in that space that she, you know, deigned her time with to make them feel like they were the only person in that space. So I think there's an, an, a real art and a gift to that. Yeah, no, I agree. So tell me, where did you grow up? What led you to journalism? So I grew up in a tiny little place called Churchill in Gippsland, which um, I'm in Melbourne at the moment. Churchill's um, a couple of hours from here. I um, grew up in 
public housing. Um, my mum and dad worked multiple jobs to put us through school, so very Australian sort of story. Um, I came to Melbourne to university and, and I'm a uni dropout. Um, I started doing an arts degree and got three years into my degree and thought, you know, I don't know, what am I doing in life? I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what job I want to do. Sorry for interrupting, but I do think the cycle of education or the process, if you like, it does if you're not clear-headed about what you want to do, it really is a big commitment when you're still uncertain. It is. And I was, you know, a country kid, moved to the city, so I'd left, you know, left the nest and got to Melbourne and it was so exciting and so much fun. I don't think I actually went to any of my classes for one minute. I was way too busy, you know, at the pub and out with my friends and, and just having the best time of my life. But I got sort of three years into this degree and thought, I really don't know what, you know, what am I doing here? And, Coincidentally, at the time, a, a girlfriend had just got a job at New Idea magazine, which was then the old, um, it was Pacific Publications, Southdown Press. So it was, you know, in the days where Dulcie Bowling still loomed very large in the, within the magazine. And, you know, there was the Dulcie and the Nini Wars and all this sort of thing going on. And she said to me, you know, there's a job, they're starting a new magazine. There's a job going as a, as a copy kit, an editorial assistant. Um, and I was quite interested in sport and footy. And landed this job and um, I was making coffee for the editor and making coffee for the journos and it was in that period of time watching the journalists and watching what they do I fell in love with their job and I thought that's the job that I want to do I, I want to do what they're doing so I was really very fortunate um, some of the journos took me under their wing and mentored me and every weekend I went out and wrote stories and submitted them to the editor and the editor kept saying, no, 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 your job here is, you're, you're, the, you're the editorial assistant, so don't get above yourself. But I kept going and kept going and an opportunity came up um, in the building at New Idea and the, a picture editor had left and they said, if you can come across and do this job and last here for 12 months, we'll give you a cadetship. Um, and that was what I did and that's how I got my start. So it was very accidental in many ways. And I do consider myself, you know, the luckiest university dropout in the world. Were you attracted to the story or to the writing? Uh, both. I was attracted to the story and, the, and I, I would go out on photo shoots with the journalists and watch them interviewing people. And I just loved that art of conversation and the ability, you know, sitting with someone, I'm picking this, this incredible story. And I think what it was was that every single day, you were talking to someone who was really interesting. So you were speaking to them because they'd, they'd done something interesting and unusual and I really, enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed that human aspect of it. And the writing part of it then came to, the love of the writing um, came to it. And I, was always, I always have been very conscious of making sure that I'm very true to someone's story and making sure that what I put on the paper actually really reflects that person that I've spent that time with. So tell me then what happened. So you worked your guts out. <laughs> worked my guts out, got a job at New Idea in the office at New Idea and it really just started from there. Um, I, I worked my way up the food chain, probably f more luck than anything. Editors came and left and we'd had a series of people coming and going and at 26 um, I was appointed the editor of New Idea, which I did for a little while, but I was in, I was in Sydney and my, my soon-to-be husband was in, was in Melbourne. Um, but... Landing that job was fantastic and I, I really do look back, it was, you know, I'm very old now, Cheryl, it was a long time ago, but um, I've been essentially in magazines 
ever since. And I've had various bits of time where I've stepped out of writing and sort of gone and done other things. But I always can't, it's, it's you know, it burns a hole in you. Um, I absolutely love it. And it's, I think it's very much such a part of who I actually am that I'll never, I'll never stop. There's always a story to tell. There's always another story that you want to write. There's always someone really interesting that you want to interview and speak with. And uh, I, I, that's what I love about it. So I think I'll be doing this hopefully for a very long time to come. I don't feel like I've ever worked a day in my life. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I feel the same way, you know, talking to interesting people. I'm talking to you. Do you think, and this has been interested, and you probably know this, um, when the pandemic hit, people took to reading. And I know, and you might know this too, because um, it was reported in the media, that in Melbourne in particular, when it came to the second lockdown, Melbourne bookshops experienced the same sales that they have at Christmas. People rushed, you know, a couple of days before the lockdown date to get books and to start reading. And it gives me great hope, but it also shows that there's so much in story, doesn't it? Oh, I think so. And I think the ability to lose yourself in someone else's story, to, to be taken to another place, that sense of escapism that someone else's story brings to you. And, and for, for that moment in time um, that you're immersed in the pages of someone else's story. You're, you're not thinking about your own world. And that's what, to me, um, writing and books and magazine stories and, and all that sort of content, that's what the essence of that is to me. It's the ability to be in someone else's life, to, to share in their experience and to immerse yourself in someone else's world. And I, I think we can never, ever take that for granted. Yeah, I agree. Um, so tell me, when did you go, because you've written several books, so tell me, you know, because in a sense you're writing um, short form, aren't you, um, as a journalist. So when yeah. did you take that to long form? Because I'd imagine that's totally different scenario. Right. Totally, totally different scenario. It was a very, very long time back when I took it to, to long form. The, the very first book I did was a book called The Clothesline, diet which is a very very long time ago was that you that was me <laughs> i sold so many of them did you really thank you i was on the show yeah. floor back then oh there you go so oh look that was so yeah so that was the first book that i ever wrote um, i loved the title of that book it was a lot of fun and yeah. we you know i still keep in touch with karen now we i still get letters about it so does she i mean we, we went on the book went on to america it sold in the u.s you know so Can that was tell us a little bit about it for those people that don't it was a the... fabulous story of a, fan, a beautiful melbourne mum named karen gatt who had gone through her whole life suffering terrible obesity i mean really awful stuff she used to spit at herself in the mirror when she'd leave the house because she was so crippled by this obesity. And she tried every diet imaginable, nothing ever worked. And then she did this, you know, crazy, strange thing of literally, she's a very, very big girl, of literally starting to walk tiny laps of the clothes I'm in her backyard. She had two tiny children at that stage and, and was so embarrassed. to. She was too embarrassed to walk on the streets because of her size. So she literally started walking tiny laps of the clothes I'm in her backyard. And eventually she lost around 70 kilos and transformed her life and went on to help so many others. She, she ran community groups. Um, she ran support groups for, for people, for years, and still does now. I mean, we're talking, you know, a long time ago that we wrote this book. But it was quite a phenomenon because she'd done it all herself. She proved everybody wrong and she literally did it one step at a time. And it was quite a gorgeous story of, of hope. And, and I think it really touched a, a heart with a lot of people that that you could actually do this yourself. And, and the anxiety and all the emotions that she went through and the triumph at the end. It's really quite a quite a well, beautiful story to write. 
do you know what I thought about it? That it just showed such honesty, like sh- so much of yourself, I thought she showed, and it was authentic. It wasn't a book about a huge story. It was a book about a small story of one person, and it was a small story that went a long way. It go a long way. I mean, we, you know, we found ourselves in America um, the book the book was signed in in the states, so we had a trip to America, and and there she was, literally sitting on the on the couch in New York, doing breakfast TV in New York, talking about her story. It really was, you know, quite wonderful. But how, I think how did that you meet? we met through through the magazine. So I wrote a story about her for New Idea, and at the time I did it. Um, it was one of those stories I literally you know, found a tiny tiny snippet in a suburban newspaper, and, and she'd put an ad in a paper saying to people, "I've you know I've walked around the clothesline, must lost all my weight, and I can help you too." And it was one of those ones back then that you kind of went, "What? You did what?" You know, that's crazy. I've got to meet this woman. So we went out, did a story which just went gangbusters. I mean, after the first story that we did for New Idea, we literally were getting, you know, way back in the day, bags, bags of mail from, you know, the, the, the post office was literally bringing in sacks of letters for her. It was absolutely extraordinary. So we, I knew, and I knew that when I interviewed her, which is probably the same thing with most of my books, I knew the time that I interviewed her that in that space of probably a 1,000 1,200-word story, I had barely scraped the surface of what was actually really going on here and there was so much more to this story than, than I could ever fit in that tiny little space. And that's how, that's a, that, that formula has probably been how most of the other books I've done since that time have come about. You know, I've been fortunate to interview someone and realise that what we've got here is something so much more than what we can share in a relatively small space. So tell me about the Freedom Circus because I love how that came about too. Well, the Freedom Circus, I, I married into this story. <laughs> That's how it came about. Um, it was there. It, it was always, you know, it's, it, and it is, um, it is the most extraordinary story that I've ever written and it's been sitting under my nose for a very long time and it, it's been a book that I've wanted to write for a really long time but for a whole lot of reasons the timing just wasn't ever probably quite right. But this story literally, you know, when I first started going out with my husband a long time ago, sort of in casual conversation, you know, but he he might talk about his grandma and grandpa, his nana pop and, and anecdotes about their story. And, and I was intrigued by this these people and, and what they've done. Um, I never got to meet his his pop, his grandfather, um, but I but his grandmother was adorable and, and the life of the party and a hilarious woman. And one day he kind of said, oh, I have told you about this, right, haven't I? And I was, was like, well, no, you've never really told me the whole story. So he started telling me the story of, of, of how pop was in the circus in Poland and how they used the cover of the circus to escape the Nazis. And, and that was essentially how they came to, you know, via a very, very long journey, got to Australia, and then he became um, a clown on one of the first clowns on Australian TV on the Tarak Show on Channel 9. So it was quite an extraordinary story. And for a long time I'd been saying to him, you really need to sit down with your nana and take this story down, you know, before it's too late, this, you know, you should sit with her and take this down. And, and he said to me, well, you're the writer, you should do it. And then it was kind of, I think it was a little bit all too close to the bone for him. He said, no, 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 you should do this. 
So after my own children were born, it really became much more of a passion for me to take down this story because I wanted my children to know what their family heritage was and where they'd come from. But the consensus generally with the family and when I spoke to my mother-in-law and father-in-law and others in the family about it, that the consensus kind of was she doesn't speak about it, you know, we don't really want to go there because it might traumatise her. But towards the end of her life, when we could see that time was starting to run out, I got a little bit bullish about it and said, no, I think... You know, we, we do need to really do this. And at the risk of upsetting her, this story needs to be told. So my mother-in-law had a little tin of photos, black and white photos. They had no names, no dates, nothing on them. We had no idea who these people were. When my grand, when our grandmother moved into a nursing home, she gave the tin to my mother-in-law to look after because they were obviously something quite precious to her. So I would literally go and I sat in the nursing home with her with this little tin of photos. Talk to me about how you approached her. Because there is a delicacy about this, isn't there? There is a delicacy about this. Um, so I approached her very gently about it. I mean, you know, you don't want to re-traumatise someone. That's the whole point. So I really needed to see sort of how she would react to it all. So I literally took the tin in. She was a very glamorous woman for her, you know, her nails were always done. Makeup was always on. She loved, she was more interested in the latest nail polish and what was going on with Collingwood Football Club than anything else. So I'd take her some nail, you know, take her some gorgeous nail polish and and she'd sit there and she'd be doing her nails, chatting away. And I had this little tin on my knee. And I said to her in the very first time that we really sat down and said, no, no, you know, I I want to write down your story. Oh, oh, who cares? You know, no, who cares? No one cares about this. And I, I said, well, well, I care. And it's for Alex and Charlie. And so can you, you know, can you tell me who these people are in the photos? And can you help me out with this so that we can maybe put them in an album or something? And, and she started to talk, but then she'd sort of get a bit, why do you want to know this? And it's because it's really important to us now. It's really, your, your story is really important to us. And it was always very much why do you care about this? And it became apparent to me reasonably quickly that she wasn't re-traumatised. It wasn't, it wasn't trauma that stopped her telling the story. It was just that she didn't think her story was anything particularly special because everyone she knew had escaped the Holocaust and the Nazis in some capacity. She, all of her friends were Jewish. She lived in, in Caulfield and among the Jewish community. This was their story. It was a community story. And she, she didn't really sort of feel like her story was anything special. So we did this over a long period of time and I'd go and take the photos in and we'd chat about the children and we'd chat about Collingwood Football Club and Eddie Maguire and whatever she wanted to talk about. And then I'd sort of steer, you know, her gently into, okay, Nana, so you need to tell me, you know, who's this lady in this photo and what's what's going on here? And, and that was how we started to sort of unpick it all very gently, piece, piece by piece. And and she was quite happy to chat about, about various bits and pieces, um, but I never pushed the envelope. Once I could see that we'd had enough time talking about it, um, we moved on and we did talk about Collingwood and we did talk about what the children were doing or whatever was on the TV that night. And, um, and that, so we did that over, over a series of conversations. And, and essentially what I got from her was the full skeleton of the story, but it took a lot of work post after she died. I mean, I'd, I'd only really begun the research then and knowing what I know now goodness what I'd do to have that time again and to be able to go and have another five minutes with her because I have probably more questions now or as many questions now as I did when I first sat down with her and began Talk that whole process. Talk to me about your response because you had been telling other people's stories and they weren't people that you were related to or they weren't people that were the grandparents or great-grandparents of your children. So for you, how was it? Was it emotional? Was it because it's... Oh, terribly. Family. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Talk to me. Terribly, terribly mm. emotional. And, and it, 
I mean, it has literally consumed our life and my life particularly for a very, very long time. And through this whole journey, um, and I, I think journey is quite an overused word all the time, but it really has been a journey for all of us. And through this discovery process and through the research, I was discovering things about them all the time, which was so exciting. And I was sharing these little snippets of information with the family. I'd get, you know, a little piece of information back from Poland or whatever and frantically send these emails out to the family. You know, you won't believe this. So for all of us, it was this, It was a really lovely um, mm. discovery about this woman that we knew and we, we knew um, them as Nan and Pop, but we didn't know them as the people that they were, this young couple who fled this situation. So it was like uncovering an entirely separate person and an entirely um, separate family. And we didn't know them back then. Um, we certainly do now. And I, they are like split worlds. Her, their life before they got here and their life after are, are you know, two quite separate things. But um, I think for all of us, it was a very, very rich and rewarding experience. It certainly has changed my life quite profoundly for all of us, I think, in a, in a good way. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the classic refugee story as well. I mean, yes, it's personal and it's the story of their lives. But, you know, I'm often, as I was with this book, I've just, you know, my parents immigrated, not for those reasons, but they came from war-torn Lebanon and they came out with, you know, children and lived in a one room. They lived in one room, one bathroom, not one bedroom, and that was six children and two adults, you know. And it's the story of resilience, isn't it? And that that desire for hope and a new life isn't it is that what you got from and that that's sense why of survival I mean that yeah that survival instinct in them I mean I, I can't imagine it we so when we sort of got to the when I got to the end of the essentially sort of the main research part of this project my husband and I went to Poland last year and we, we literally walked their footsteps I wanted to be able to see and feel and smell what was going on around them and get that great sense of the time and we were standing um outside the prison where she she was kept in, in Bialystok and my husband just said said to me, I how on earth did she get from here to Australia? I can't wrap my head around that at all. And and that was the sense all the way along for for me and for us was that that emotion of Oh, but how? And, you know, their life was so many, a series of lucky breaks and and this incredible instinct of survival that she she had and all along the way I mean we uncovered things that we never could have possibly imagined and it was incredibly emotional to do you know to 
and I sort of don't want to give away too much of the story for the readers, but along the way, you know, this research took us down rabbit holes that we never imagined and there were so many things that we discovered along the way that, and I, as I say, you know, I'd love the chance to sit with her now and, and, and to talk to her about some of those things that we've uncovered along the way. And so when you finish writing a book like this, it's emotional, it's a family story. So who was the first to read it in your family and how did they feel? Well, I said when I finished the book, I cried for a day. I literally spent a day almost under the doona um, just sobbing, sobbing furiously and and, um, sobbed to my publisher. I sobbed to, you know, anyone that I spoke to about it. It was a very emotional thing and, and I felt almost a sense of sadness when I got to the end of it because I enjoyed spending my time immersed in their life again so much and I was sort of quite sad to get to the end of it and put a line through that life but um, the first person that I gave it to was actually my mother-in-law as um, she was very close to uh, to Nana and Pop and she she knew Nana's story well and she knew she was actually one of the one of the few people that Nana really spoke to and I thought I want I really sort of needed to almost get her approval over it so I sent it to her and very anxiously waited for her to come back with a yes you've really captured her or no, this is terrible, you know, this is nothing like these people that we knew. So that was really important to me that that the family, and then from there um, I sent it out to the wider family, to the grandsons, who my, my husband's cousins, who were, you know, really worked very closely with me to, to bring it to life because I wanted, their, I wanted them to be comfortable that I'd really captured the person and the people that they knew as well. That was vitally, vitally important to me. So they were sort of the first inner circle that read it, and once I really had their blessing that that yes, I'd, I'd done the right thing and I'd captured Nana and Papa saying you. Um, then I sent it I, I sent it to another girlfriend who's quite, and who'd been so excited about the story for a long time and had been saying to me, I want to read it straight away. So I wanted to get it to her as well. But there was sort of a quite tight inner circle that I sent it to first. And what about your husband? Well, he actually still hasn't read it yet, which wow. is interesting. Yeah. I think it's still a little bit too raw for him. And, yeah. and I think partly too because he's lived this experience of me researching. He, he knows the story pretty well inside out by now because at every juncture along the way, he was the first person that I went to and said, oh, my God, you won't believe what I've found and I've just found this picture and I've done this. And and he came with me to Poland and and literally relived that journey with me. So, you know, we went, we went to various places. We went to the the street where, where she grew up and where her house was and we went to the to the ruins of the factory where she worked. So he's been there at every point and I, and I would explain to him along the way, we're going here because this was where your nana worked. And that's so he's physically kind of been on that journey with me the whole way. Mm. Does it, does it I, and I don't want to go political here on you, but is it the greatest disappointment I often think in this country is our resistance to helping people you know, refugees um, particularly, and it's become such a stupid political issue. I mean, why it's political, I don't know. Because when I think about it, when I think about my parents and when I think about your story, when I think about a lot of people, all people want is to live a good life. Recently, I spoke to my cousins in Beirut about that terrible bombing that's happened there recently and that was around them. And all they want to do is just get back to normal. They don't want to be defined by war. And it's probably the same. With, with your story and probably why she didn't speak about it for that long too. They don't want to be defined by that experience because they're just like you and me. That's exactly right. They just wanted a chance. All they wanted yeah. was a chance 
They just wanted a chance to survive. And they didn't choose to come to Australia. It wasn't a case of, you know, them. they didn't have the luxury of, of a choice. They, they were in a situation where no country would take them. They were in a situation where they just needed to be, they wanted, they would be anywhere that any country would have taken them. And they probably could have ended up in various different places. It just happened that that opportunity, there was a window of opportunity to come to Australia and Australia at that time granted them permission to come here. Everyone else had knocked them back. They'd been knocked back from Canada and America and Israel and all these other places. But they got the chance to come here. And Pop, my, my husband, vividly, vividly remembers Pop saying to him, once they arrived in Australia, this was their home and they were happy here and they just wanted the opportunity to make a life and to build a life for their family in a safe place. And Pop would, would talk about um, Australia being the lucky country for them and why would you want to go anywhere else? You've arrived in paradise. This is the lucky country for you. And they just wanted, all it was was just a chance, just someone that would give them a safe haven where they could build their life and they worked incredibly hard in return. Um, they expected nothing and, and, and they just wanted the opportunity to, to start and build um, a family life for themselves. Mm. Beautiful story. The book is called The Freedom Circus. Sue, thank you so much for your time today. I have so enjoyed our conversation. One, I've learned a lot about you. And two, that is just such a beautiful story and so deeply personal. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for the opportunity. I'm really grateful. And it's great to speak with you. <laughs> If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.